You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Pool party radio. Showcase. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod Support for the Projection Booth podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of the Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. Our Russian brother, Eastern Europe's most feared martial artist, Ivan Krasinski! Contact Karate, the world's deadliest game, is being kicked apart by the syndicate Soviet mean machine, leaving only one man left to stop him, Jason Stilwell. You've been fighting again. So what? You know how I feel about fighting. Yeah, I do. You're scared to death of it. Jason believed in the way of the dragon, but others didn't. Eat me up. Don't worry, I'm nobody's lunch. Can you force my hand? An example must be made. You see? Return. You know, you asked me to come. Surrender is a martial arts masterpiece. Never before has unarmed combat been displayed as powerfully as in this pugilistic ring of death. You're good. I get better. Jackie Chan, and directed by Corey Yun, a 
superb action choreographer. No retreat, no surrender was Jason Stilwell's bottom line. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, as always, co-host, Mr. Mike White. I am nobody's lunch. And joining us, a man of many talents, Mr. Zachary Oberzan. Thank you very much. I'm very flattered to be here. All right. This week, we're talking about the 1986 film, No Retreat, No Surrender. This low-budget actioner stars Kurt McKinney as Jason Stilwell, a Bruce Lee fan whose father gets chased out of L.A. by gangsters who are taking over the dojo business and using them as gangster criminal enterprises while living in seattle jason meets up with the ghost of bruce lee who trains him to become a great martial artist leading up to a showdown with the crime lords and their main man of muscle ivan played by jean-claude van damme now we'll be getting into spoilers on this one but there's many ways to see the film so you can always check it out and come back of course we'll be here when you get here so zach is our guest let's start with you when was the first time you saw no retreat no surrender and what did you think I have to admit, the first time that I saw No Retreats, No Surrender in its entirety, not just the all-too-brief clips of Jean-Claude, was about a week ago, uh, which you might find surprising because I'm like known as the you know internationally as a Jean-Claude expert, and you'd think I would have already familiarized myself with this. But the fact is, those real early films where he just appeared for a little bit have gone and watched the clips where he... He is involved, but had not watched the full film, such as like also with Black Eagle. I saw it, uh, of course, then for this for this conversation and to fit it in the whole context. I, of course, watched the whole film and found it very, very enjoyable and uh, enjoyed it, it. You know, of course, I of course I wanted more more Jean Claude, but that was that's how a career develops, and so I think it was a film that. That genre, I think, was at least in our generation, in the mainstream, that genre, I think it's a very kind of specific genre, was started with Karate Kid, which was, I think, uh, 84. And it's the story of kind of the the loser who gets beat up, then finds an ancient master who is a genius at some form of martial arts and studies with him, and then beats up the, the bad guy and wins the girl. And it is very true to that formula, and it does all of the requisite things that are necessary for that genre at that time. And I think it's uh, an excellent film. I enjoyed watching it very much. I'm glad that I did finally sit down and watch all of it, and not just not just the the Jean Claude scenes. Although, of course, that was the you know that really got me going. But the whole film was was a a, a pleasure. And, uh, and insightful to watch. What about you, Mr. Mike? You know, we receive a lot of requests for doing different movies on the show, and sometimes I'm a good person and I write them down. Other times I kind of keep them in my head. And at some point I wrote down No Retreat, No Surrender, and it was one of those where I'm like, I didn't even know what that movie was. And it's like, okay, uh, this sounds like an interesting title. And then one day I was walking by the TV and I see these guys kind of beating each other up in a ring. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And I hit info on the cable thing. And sure enough, it's no retreat, no surrender. So pretty much watch the final confrontation that happens in this film. And while that was going on, I was like, yeah, we can definitely do this. And when the opportunity came up to talk to Zach, who we know is a big JCVD fan, it's like, okay, these two things are going to go great together. 
watched the, the film in its entirety probably about six months ago for the first time all the way through and uh, really enjoyed it. And since then, I've seen it a few more times. There's actually a fan edit of this film where someone who is really into No Retreat, No Re- Surrender has gone through and kind of put together the best version possible. Uh, and that is uh, a lot of fun to, to check out, which is out on YouTube. And we've got the link for it out on our Facebook page. That doesn't necessarily mean then that it makes it uh, overly... Uh, Jean-Claude centric. He's sim- this person simply liked the liked the movie very much and created another version, but not not simply out of a, a love of Jean-Claude, but for the movie itself. For the movie itself, yes. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Yeah. So restored the original logo and picked up some different music cues because apparently there are different versions that were released in Australia, in the UK, and maybe even Hong Kong, and kind of put all these things together in the best possible way because you know there are some um interesting cuts in the film there's it's a little clunky at times and so this person kind of fixed that a little bit so i rewatched the original just a few hours ago and i did kind of notice those a little bit more seeing the original after having seen the fan cut but uh, regardless i think both of them hold up very well as for me, uh, I, like you, just saw this recently in the past few weeks for the first time because for oh. the show. And as for Jean-Claude Van Damme, and we'll get more into talking about that, of course, I think my original relation to him was through Bloodsport, which I saw as a kid when it first came out. Saw other things of his in this period where he was doing the, uh, the more of the martial arts stuff and not so much um, – like the action film that he eventually kind of uh, mutated into when we talk about things like Hard Target or something like that. So it was interesting to watch because to me, I think the film is, it feels like two different movies. And I'm wondering if as, as we go along, we can kind of pick up on maybe that's the reason, as you were saying, Mike, there are these different cuts. Yeah, there's definitely at least two storylines going on in here. And after a little while, I kind of forgot that the first one even happened. Yes, <laughs> that, that's, that's true. There, I kind of it was almost uh, almost Shakespearean in its subplots, and they seemed to weave, but then they kind of just dissipated. Sometimes they just—I'm not sure if that was a choice or or it's ended up in the editing room like that. But uh, yeah, certainly there, there are some sort of let us say sort of unconnected. Uh, moments or where you don't quite follow uh, the logic, which, of course, why that is not a necessity to it being a good film. But yes, that struck me as well. Well, where it starts really is at the beginning. And I think this is really what I was kind of getting at is it opens with the scene where they're in the dojo and the father is running the joint and he's got the kids and he's teaching them. And then the bad guys come in and all of that seems in the ending as well, all seems to be like part of a, I would say regular martial arts film. Oh, but yeah, then, totally. But yeah. then, Zach, you're correct in going, this is like the Karate Kid. So it almost feels like they were trying to make a regular martial arts film and then said, eh, maybe we need to make it more geared towards teenagers. Yeah, there's a, a really big shift right there. I mean, there's a lot of pop culture. There's there's numerous breakdancing scenes. Yeah, once they move into Seattle, 
it just becomes very much Karate Kid. And yeah, those the scenes of the breakdancing, it's like, wait, wait, where did this come from? Yeah, but they were there. I mean, that was the, the epoch of the time. You know, I was a breakdancer myself, so I just had a soft spot in my heart for, for those scenes. What's this? <laughs> Well, not only is RJ the uh, the guy who suddenly befriends our main character, like within moments, um, not only can he break dance, but he can also bust a rhyme as well. He is an African-American sidekick that uh, appears out of nowhere in the film and, you know, is a steady and handy sidekick for for our lead. And has a few little moments to himself where he gets to put in some dancing and some rapping, and um, and I think that fit perfectly into the the style of the time and what uh, certainly what teenagers wanted to see. He even gets to wear a Michael Jackson glove, which I found very impressive. Mm. The, the whole thing with the kids in the neighborhood, because there's isn't there like the overweight neighbor who doesn't like anyone too? It has this kind of like after school special kind of acting quality. Yes, yeah, Scott, played by um, Kent Lipham, who I, yeah, I don't really know necessarily what his motivation is except for avarice, because he seems to be very mad at the new kid and that he's all into karate and stuff. <laughs> I told you you couldn't run away forever. You and that Bruce Lee freak. And then you find out, in, like a few scenes later, that he actually is part of this other dojo. And I'm like, I thought you hated karate. What is? <laughs> there, there's very little. Uh, as I said, it is very, very formulaic, uh, and and sticks to that very well, regardless. And this is what the beauty of it, perhaps in a sense, in that. It sticks to the formula without even relying on logic. And yeah, so there is the Commedia dell'arte character of the fat kid who, and you could just not get away with that in today's cinema because he hates, like from the outset for like absolutely no reason, he he hates not only the new kid, but he hates RJ. And that would just, in today's political climate, you could just, it would be immediately reject, or his character would immediately become so villainized that there'd be no redeeming quality because he inexplainably hates this black kid. He like waits on the curb while the, while the black guy's coming down the sidewalk and trips him. It would it would be making a far bigger statement in today's political climate than it was then. Yeah, that's right. You do have this character uh, who belittles uh, RJ at first for for performing uh, studying karate and and then suddenly is in the Seattle dojo himself and um, gets uh, and I've, I thought to myself like he gets uh, you know in the final scene he gets. Uh, 
this guy i don't i don't know the 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 performer's name but you know he gets one scene where like where jean-claude he like tries to run into the ring and jean-claude kicks him in the head or something and that's like this guy's probably like this guy's claim to fame i got kicked in the head by jean-claude van damme in 1986 it has that clip on his computer and just shows it to every girl that he brings home you know That's good. I like that. Because that is another change in the film. I mean, if we go from the kind of gangster slash typical karate opening, you know, where it's the whole, like, your school of karate is not as good as our school of karate, but then it's also kind of couched in this gangster thing. And then it takes this turn where they move up to Seattle, and that's kind of going along. And then one night, our main character is sitting there watching TV, and there's this whole match that he sees on television, which introduces another character who owns the other dojo in town. And then we kind of switch into that and there's this really weird kind of left turn where we're suddenly at a party and it's the brother of the karate champion guy who is having this party and he's got a girlfriend there and apparently our main character has met this girl before so it's like this whole like instant love interest kind of thing happening and for a long time, that's like RJ drops out of the story and we just have this whole tale of, you know, the kid and, and having this love interest and he gets mad at her and there's misunderstanding and all this kind of stuff. And then we kind of get back into the plot again when Sensei Lee shows up and starts to teach our main character karate because he's he's at his wit's end. Jason Stillwell is at his wit's end and goes to visit Bruce Lee's grave for a second time and is just pleading, you know, I can't do it without you. And then he gets this mystical vision of Bruce Lee who kind of comes in and sets his life straight. Again, sticking very much to the formulaic aspects of such a of, su- of the genre as a karate kid but not somewhere along the line you know there's a lot of people involved usually in making a film sometimes not so many but things get a bit distorted and things get edited in such a way and uh and things get missed and things get clipped and things get and so it does not actually the the sort of beauty of it is kind of looking at it as a film that was trying to follow a formula and did its best and achieved these results and so what we're sort of deconstructing is the the beauty of of that attempt rather than say a successful attempt so to speak does that sound bad no not at all i know i i think the film works i'm i i don't have a problem with it at all in terms no. of entertainment i mean it's very entertaining film to watch it's very much of its era which is interesting because it's kind of a time capsule it, it yes. very much is 1986 and and i think that's a lot of fun the other aspects of it when it comes to the the two characters and in, in you talked about how the the one character who uh, has this hatred for RJ, the the African American black kid in mm. here, like there's really two characters in the film. Now that I think about it, that play into these um, stereotypes of race that seems to show up in film. Now, yeah, could you? Yeah, I mean, could you say that RJ is the magical Negro, and in a way, Bruce Lee is sort of the mystical Asian that shows up and puts people on the path, much like in Karate Kid. I mean, Mr. Miyagi could be seen that, or even um, the the character which we talked about when we did uh, Gremlins of of the old uh, Chinaman in Chinatown, who you know has come to teach 
the the white people a lesson, and then he takes back the you know the Mogwai. Um, do you think that those are stereotypical and, and play into what we've now seen as you know, as I said, the the, the magic Negro and the the mystical Asian? I think there are many people. I kind of said that like Jean Claude. I think there are many people. I think there are many people who would agree with that in watching this film and say immediately seeing then, you know, the black kid come on and see his worth and why he's there. I don't, in, in terms of a character types or these, as you say, the, the magical Negro or, or such, it, I mean, yes, it, it became a, a character type, but no, but no such more, no more, no more such than certain white uh, characters or women were assigned to. It's a, it's, it's like a commedia dell'arte role. It's just a, it's a role, and I, I wouldn't uh, place any racism on it. I certainly wouldn't look back at those people and judge them when they made that film almost thirty years ago and think that there was anything racist going on. Yeah, I don't really see R.J. as being mystical at at all. I definitely see Sensei Lee as being kind of this um, more of a magical character, but then that's really the role that he is brought into play is this whole idea of this uh, spirit guide who's coming in and helping out Jason. But what I like about that is that as the film goes on, we find out that it's all in Jason's head and that he's actually teaching himself and that he is motivating himself and using this sensei lee character to move him along which i i found to be really kind of a nice message that he had this power within himself the entire time he didn't actually need any kind of outside help it's like if the ralph macchio character kind of discovered on his own that he was the self-actualized person that he didn't need a, a mr miyagi but i'm um, uh, it was a nice way of of getting us there which i i kind of found to be pretty nice and even when it comes to the jean-claude van damme character where he's playing ivan you know it's 1986 when this is made and we're one year out from rocky four and we could have been even more jingoistic about how ivan was being portrayed and it could have been ivan drago instead it could have been this whole rocky four battle between the american way and soviet oppression but i was glad that it was almost kind of a, an aside that he was russian even though it's kind of a weird thing when jason insults him by just kind of spitting russian at him and how mad Jean-Claude gets. Yes, I was going to say the very, the very same thing, of course, we're at the height of the Cold War, and so the word Russian itself said, like, as it, you know, is was, that's a real, you know, audience go-getter. That's, you, you know, by saying, like, Russian itself, it's like, at that time, it'd be like, say, you know, like Nazi, you know, it would, that was, it's like, obviously, he is, like, evil and comes from evil and represents evil. Uh, so that's interesting, uh, very telling of the times. The other thing is, though, uh, it, it, I had a completely different take on the whole appearance of Bruce Lee. My assumption throughout the film was that Bruce Lee did come back to train Jason but no one else could see him. Like, uh, you know, in some movies, it's like they get the invisible friend and only they can see them. But uh, but no one else can. And everyone thinks they're crazy because then like because then the black kid like looks in the window and he sees Jason training and uh, talking to someone and no one's there. And so he makes a quizzical face like what's going on. But of course, but Jason sees Bruce Lee and 
in my mind, I, I interpreted it as that Bruce Lee was real, his spirit was real and was teaching him, but he was only visible to Jason. So that's a very interesting interpretation that you have, and I'll have to think about that uh, as far as that it was all just like a sort of psychotic episode in Jason's mind where he imagined Bruce Lee and already sort of had the power within himself and brought it out, which is actually a very sort of Bruce Lee-ian philosophy. One more thing before we uh, get away from the Scott character. We were talking about how he wouldn't necessarily exist in today's films, and I completely agree with that. But I think that a version of him kind of does exist in the world. He totally reminds me of Cartman. Rather than making fun of black people, even though Cartman does kind of make fun of black people at times, if RJ was a Jewish character, it totally, he totally would be like Cartman. <laughs> he also kind of reminded me of, although he has more money, of Francis from uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Totally. <laughs> so the big fight at the end, I'm going to reserve this for you, Zach. And you said you've seen these scenes before, and now you've seen the whole thing in context. What do you think of the uh, the performance by Jean-Claude at the end? Because he's really only in the beginning and the end. He's probably got 10 minutes, 15 minutes of screen time total, but wanted to give you a chance to uh, say what you think on it. I admit I was, of course, disappointed to realize that he was only at the very beginning and the, and the very end. But I'll tell you uh, something, at least from the, what, I, what I have heard in terms of I've looked a bit at Jean-Claude's early career and then as part of do part of something to do with why my respect for him and what really got him noticed that was one of course the first things he did as a besides just being an extra or being inside the predator suit until he complained that it was too hot and got fired when he jumps in his like nice white suit jumps up and puts one foot on one guy's shoulder and pushes off that guy to kick another guy in the face. That is the moment in in cinema history that is a, a moment because that's what a lot of producers raised their eyebrows about. Like, you know, everyone was kind of looking for the next Bruce Lee and who could do just like fantastic stunts like that, you know, and no, no, no trickery. So that's a very, very powerful opening. And then the, the the final fight sequence, it's very ironic because he acts very much like how Bolo Young does in Bloodsport, where he just basically is told to, by, you know, by the director to, to, after he beats all the losers, to raise his hands and say, I'm the best, I'm the best. And uh, he's not given a lot of, of range, of, uh, of course. And as we've learned, Jean-Claude actually is a man of great range. Of course, at the time now, he was 25, and he was very new to all this, and it was all very exciting for him. And one of the wonderful things about Jean-Claude that I think is that he approached the whole business, the whole movie business with, and I don't mean this in a condescending way, but with a whole lot of naivete. And what I love watching about his performance in that film, beyond beyond just the beauty of his athletics, is... His attempt, as I've always enjoyed then for the next 30 years, his attempt to inhabit a character, to be a method actor, regardless of he, if he's successful or not, that, that, that doesn't really particularly interest me. Method acting is, is actually, in, in the West, it's how acting is judged, but actually it's only one of many, many forms of acting. And the fact that he is but is so obsessed with or, and was so obsessed with America and wanting to come to America and become a movie star, he, of course, embraced this notion of method acting. And it's very, very fascinating to see how someone who 
really is not a, a craftsman at method acting performs one in their attempts to be a method actor and then two sort of almost in a way sort of gradually giving it up and finally realizing that it's actually not about you know people aren't coming to see me because I'm pretending to be an ex-CIA agent from Texas whose wife was murdered and such and such and such and my, I have to rescue my daughter. They want to see Jean-Claude Van Damme. I want to see Jean-Claude Van Damme. I'm far more interested in Jean-Claude Van Damme than an ex-CIA agent whose two daughters were murdered in Mexico. That goes for Bruce Lee too. That goes for Stallone. That goes for all of the action heroes. I, I don't even know why they actually bother to be or try to put on characters. Bruce Lee never put on a character and you can't take your eyes off him. On screen, so in America and a lot of Europe, you know, Jean Claude gets gets made fun of for being someone who's not a quote good actor. That to me is the best acting. I don't care how many accents Robert De Niro or Meryl Streep master, or if they can limp, or if they can talk like they had a stroke. Or that's a great craft, and it's interesting, and that's that's fun. But it's not presence. And Jean Claude has presence, and he and he to sum up, Jean Claude had Jean Claude showed showed his presence in that film in what little time he had. It's interesting that you say that because as you're talking, I'm thinking of like um, Jackie Chan, who is kind of also being groomed as the next Bruce Lee, and when they brought him to America with uh, Battle Creek Brawl and The Protector, they kind of put him into these roles that he wasn't necessarily cut out for i mean the the protector especially is just it, it rings very false whereas his roles when he was in hong kong he was jackie yeah. he was always being just jackie chan and just that way that he handled himself on screen was so natural and then you bring him over here and you try to plunk him in these roles i mean it worked a little bit better with battle creek brawl but not so much with the protector and i think that was due to a lot of other reasons but it, it is kind of that way that they would take jean claude and try to fit him into this other thing i always find it interesting to compare the paths that Jean-Claude Van Damme took and Dolph Lundgren, because we have these two guys who are kind of coming to being right around the same time. I mean, you know, Dolph Lundgren, I mentioned Rocky four. That was where he kind of came into the spotlight. You had, um, no retreat, no surrender, but eventually blood sport is where Jean-Claude comes into the spotlight. They come together in universal soldier and it's just so interesting to see the trajectory that these guys had, especially over the few years between what we saw in Rocky Four and what we would see in Universal Soldier. I mean, Dolph Lundgren worked so hard to lose his accent, to sound as American as you and me. And sometimes I wonder if he was almost penalized for that or if that was a benefit to him, whereas with Jean-Claude, as you were saying, they were always trying to explain away his accent, mm. which after a while got so ridiculous. Oh, it just, yes, right. Oh, God. It's like, oh, well, he's, uh, he's Cajun. Uh, well, his mother was French. Um, he's from uh, Guyana, where it was a colony of France. You know, all these kind of weird things. Mm. It's just like, let Jean-Claude be who he is, and let's just enjoy him for his presence. Precisely, and that is exactly – that's why I made the distinction in the beginning between when I said the traditional – in the West, meaning America and Europe, 
the traditional idea of acting, which in, in this at this particular era is still very much influenced by Brando, by the whole method acting thing. That's still the big. In Asia, it's a completely different story. They have a very different culture, and in in, in Asian theater, in Japanese theater, in no theater, no N O H, it's completely different. The stars there are themselves and their own personalities, as Bruce Lee was. And Bruce Lee was, of course, a huge hit in Hong Kong because he was just such a badass and 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 he was just projected that on on screen. He didn't have to matter what character name he gave him or what his you know backstory was, had nothing to do with it. And unfortunately, though, in, in the West, particularly in America, particularly in Hollywood, of course you have to then if you want to be a, a star, you've got to you've got to explain why you have this accent or you've got to try and lose it. It is the West's obsession with suspension of disbelief and where you draw that line. To me, the greatest suspension of disbelief that was ever asked of any human in the history of cinema is that this skinny 16-year-old could beat the shit out of Jean-Claude Van Damme. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. (laughs) Well, while we're there, why don't we take a break and play an interview with Keith W. Strandberg, the screenwriter of No Retreat, No Surrender, after these important messages. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take Uh, us to church. uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, (laughs) horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. <laughs> People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ugh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to properly crush a head. But let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the yeah. famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe. 
carve out the inside. Then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal. Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo. That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. I'm Keith Strandberg, and I'm a writer and producer. I've done a bunch of low-budget martial arts films, um, most notably No Retreat, No Surrender, and King of the Kickboxers, and Super Fights, and that sort of thing. So how did you get involved in making films? Well, I was a, I'm a martial artist. I've been training in the martial arts since I was 12 years old. So when I, I studied Chinese language in college, it was one of my majors. I went to Oberlin College in Ohio. And my majors were Chinese language and literature and physical education. Um, and everybody joked that I would be a, a YMCA teacher in China <laughs> while I was studying. And it turned out that I actually went to Taiwan uh, for a year to learn Chinese. Um, and I'm fluent now. And uh, I was teaching English at a YMCA in Taiwan. And uh, I, I sort of got a, the bug for, I had always had the bug for martial arts films. Uh, that's one of the reasons I got started training in the martial arts. I had seen Five Fingers of Death and some of these other great martial arts films, and Bruce Lee was a hero of mine, and so I I was training in the martial arts. I started uh, you know, before he died, and then when he died, it was a, it was a big deal. And uh, I got the idea that maybe I could be a, a fighter in a, in a martial arts film. So when I was in Taiwan, I contacted some companies about doing some some work in martial arts films and never heard anything back. And then when I moved back to the U.S., I took a job being a, a tour director, taking Americans to China. At that point, only groups could get into China. This was back in the early 80s. And so only only groups of Americans could go into China. You couldn't go as an individual. So they needed people like me that spoke Chinese and knew their way around Asia. And so I did nine tours of America of taking Americans to China, and, and on a couple of them I had a layover in Hong Kong. I had four or five days in Hong Kong between two different tours, and one of those times I decided to make contact with these martial arts film companies, you know, the guys like Golden Harvest and Shaw Brothers and some others, to see. I had already started uh, writing at that point. I hadn't done any screenplays, but I was a writer, and so I thought maybe I could see what it was like to make martial arts films and. I, you know, there weren't many good martial arts films at the time, and I thought I could easily make make martial arts movies as poorly as everyone else was. So I started making some calls, and and everybody was hanging up on me. And I got through to Seasonal Film, which is the company that I work with now, and I knew that the president of Seasonal Film spoke Mandarin, and that's what I spoke. I didn't speak Cantonese, and most of the, in fact, all the other companies they were speaking Cantonese or English. And I knew that the head of seasonal NG, he spoke Mandarin. So while he was trying to hang up on me, I switched to Mandarin and we hit it off on the phone. He invited me over to his office and we had a long, long chat and looked at some movies and talked about the future. 
And he at that point said at any time, you know, if he decided he was going to make an American sort of American martial arts movie of Kung Fu action, he'd get in touch with me. So I went back to the U.S., uh, got a job, and in about a year, I got a call from NG that said he was ready to start. He was going to make an American martial arts movie with American actors in Hong Kong action, and would I work on it? And I said, of course, and and that's how it started, and that movie became No Retreat and Surrender. What was the market like back then as far as um, American martial arts films? I'm trying to remember what it was like in the early 80s. It seems like it was kind of a... An open field, right? There was nothing. Uh, Ours was really the first low-budget martial arts film with American actors and an American story and Hong Kong action. We sort of started, and number two, no at that time was very, very successful. Got a theatrical release, a wide theatrical release, and did really well. And it kind of jump-started the whole low-budget martial arts film genre at that point. How did the actual film kind of develop? Were you brought a story and asked to work on it, or how did that go? Well, NG had the story. He had this story about the ghost of Bruce Lee training some kid. And I thought it was great because I was a big Bruce Lee fan at the time and still am. And I thought it was a great story. And so I wrote the script. And, and NG said to me, you know, uh, you know how to write a script, right? And I said, oh, sure. Yeah, no problem. I had never even seen a script before. <laughs> so uh, I, said, I said I knew how to do it. And so I got back panicking, read some scripts. And Typically, a script, uh, one page of a script equals about a minute of screen time. That's the normal formula. And so any action film is usually pretty short. It's between 80 and 90 minutes. So a martial arts film should be about 90 pages long, let's say. Well, my first draft of of No Retreat No Surrender, which I was calling at the time Ring of Truth, um, because it ended in in the ring, and so I thought that was a nice title. Um, But my first draft was 200 pages long. Oh, wow. I had written this epic. I had written this epic martial arts film, and it was mostly because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. So I had made a bunch of mistakes, and you know, it was 100, 180, 200 pages long, way too long. But the good thing was that I was on set with the director, and the director was Yuan Kui, uh, Corey Yuan, who has gone on to be a really famous choreographer and did some directing of Western movies as well. And he didn't speak in English, so I was the second assistant director on the movie, and I was the translator for Yuinkwe. So the night before, we usually I stayed up until midnight the night before, rewriting the next day's scene because it was way too long. And it was a great way of seeing what actually worked, you know, to see what I had done wrong and what I could change uh, the night before and see what, what we actually ended up making. So it was a great experience for me, and that's what really got me into producing was seeing how the movie was made and making the changes and working really closely with NG and with Corey. Young. Sounds a little like a trial by fire. <laughs> Absolutely. I had, you know, I was from Toledo, Ohio. I was living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at the time. And all of a sudden there I am in Hollywood making a movie. So tell me about the making of the movie. What was that like? Well, it was a low budget film. I think our, our budget at the time was 750,000, which wasn't, which wasn't super low, but it, you know, I think our schedule was 36 days and, you know, now they make low-budget action at you know, 12 days, 15 days, which I, I don't even see how they do it. But, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great time. You know, it was a really exciting. And, you know, we shot all in location. We didn't do any studio stuff. It was all in location. And, you know, the, the company, and we were probably 60 or 80 people, the company would go from location to location shooting the, shooting the scenes and doing the action. It was really great. I love that not only is it a martial arts film, but you also have some good break dancing in there. <laughs> Well, that's a sign of the times. It's it's funny. I get people that uh, I don't know if you know uh, 
Scott Atkins. He's a he's a up and coming. He's been in in martial arts films forever. He's one of the biggest talents right now. And I was just talking to him a little while ago because we we tried to hire him for. He's a UK resident. We tried to hire him for Blood Moon, but ran into some real problems getting him a visa to work here. And I that's one of my biggest regrets is that we never used him. But we've become sort of friendly. And he was telling me that uh, you know no treatment surrender was something that inspired him. And I get that a lot from martial artists that. You know, that's what got them into the martial arts, or they love that movie. And there are people that recite dialogue to me that I can't even remember that I wrote, and they, they have memorized it because they've seen the movie so many times. What was the, the casting process like for that one? We did some acting casting, you know, where we saw some, some actors, and then we did a lot of fight casting. And that's how we found Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, we did an open call, which is also known as a cattle call, where you, you say, we're going to be at this gym from this time to this time, and if you're interested in being in the movie, come come along. This is what we're looking for. And so we had lines of people outside in in Hollywood as we were doing this casting, and there were so many people we couldn't see everyone. And NG sent me out, even though I didn't know what I was doing, sent me out and said, bring in the, the guys that look the best, you know, for fighters. These are specifically for fighting, fighting roles. And so I walked down this line and, you know, there are hundreds of people, you know, looking at me because they sort of knew that I was with the production and they knew that I could, I almost held their fate in my hands. If I chose them, they'd at least get a chance. And Jean-Claude Van Damme was one of the five that I picked out to come inside and show what they could do. And he was, you know, he was a really nice guy then, uh, really skilled as a fighter. He claimed to be a, he claimed to be a competitor. I don't think he ever really was. But he was, you know, his kicks were beautiful, and he was really skilled as a fighter. How was his English back then? His English wasn't bad. Today, his English is is better than his French, I think, because I sometimes hear him speak French, and his French isn't good. He, I think he prefers to speak English. But uh, his English was okay. You know, he didn't have a lot of lines, so it was okay to be sort of the strong, silent type. He had a thick accent, if I remember right. Can you tell me a little bit about the the actor who played Sensei Lee? Uh, it was a Korean guy that spoke absolutely no English. <laughs> and so what we had to do is we hired somebody to to look at the dialogue and write a, a Korean sentence that would mimic the pacing of the American sentence. So he didn't try to speak the English. He spoke Korean. And then we dubbed the English in, and we were hoping that his mouth would sort of move along with the uh, w- with what he was saying, you know, that, that the English would match his mouth. It, it did a little bit, but it wasn't great. But he really did. He had played Bruce Lee in a couple of other sort of low-budget movies. Uh, you know, they came out with a bunch after Bruce Lee died, like The Ghost of Bruce Lee and The Legend of Bruce Lee and all these. So he had done one of those, and he actually, he looked pretty good. Uh, and he had sort of the mannerisms of Bruce Lee, I thought. And can you tell me, what was it like working with uh, Kurt McKinney? Oh, Kurt and I are, are great friends to this day. He's He's just great. He was in a, I think he was on the Guiding Light when, uh, or no, he got the Guiding Light after Norwich, but he was a, a very good actor and he was a Taekwondo black belt at the time. And he was just, he was great. He was willing to do anything. He was a pleasure to work with. Uh, we really got along great and we're still friends to this day. And when it came out, what was the reception for the movie like? It was just incredible. I mean, it had a, I think it was because we were offering something that really hadn't been seen before. You know, there had been a couple of big budget movies. The Karate Kid, I think, came out before we did. Uh, but it was, the action was very Western action. It was sort of barroom brawl kind of action. It was nothing as detailed as the stuff we were doing in No Retreat, No Surrender. And so it was phenomenal. I mean, the, 
it got, as I said, it got a theatrical release and the success was really good. And, and it was released on, back then it was VHS and Betamax, uh, and sold incredibly well. I mean, the guys that, that were involved in the distribution, they made a fortune off it. And it, it went all around the world. I mean, I live in Switzerland now, and it was known, I think the title here in Europe was Karate Tiger. And there are people here that know the movie and, you know, and know of my name just because of Karate Tiger. Wow. So kind of worldwide fame then, huh? I don't know. It was fame. <laughs> Maybe it isn't for me for, because uh, I can't watch the movie now. I mean, I think we did some good things. Uh, I'm in one of the scenes. I'm a fighter in one of the scenes uh, when, when the dad comes out of the bar and the son saves him from a beating. I'm one of the fighters. And my legacy from that is that I turned the wrong way when Kurt kicked me in the face. He, he did a spinning kick, and I and I turned the wrong way, and I n- have never lived that down. Anytime I see any of the stunt guys that were on that movie, they always you know, they always remind me that I turned the wrong way. <laughs> so, how did the idea of the sequel come about? Well, the thing was, it was never going to be a sequel, and it isn't really a sequel. It's No Retreat, No Surrender Two, and then we did No Retreat, No Surrender Three. For a while there, I thought no, it was going to be No, no Retreat, No Surrender, Never Again. You know that I'd have to make. Every movie would be called No Retreat and Surrender. Uh, we we made a movie, and it was originally entitled Raging Thunder. And it was not a sequel. It was not the same characters. Uh, but we did have two, two picture deals with Jean-Claude Van Damme and with uh, Kurt McKinney. And both of them backed out of their contract. Uh, I think Van Damme thought it was too dangerous to go to Thailand for some reason. And he talked Kurt out of doing the movie. And so we had to recast and we found Lauren and we found Matthias Hughes to take those two roles. And then in this one, you got a chance to work with Cynthia Rothrock. What was she like? I only wrote the script. And then there was a guy that worked with NG, a guy named Roy Horan, who was his sales director. And he wanted to, he wanted to produce No Retreat, No Surrender, or Raging Thunder. And, you know, he wanted to make a lot of changes to the script. And not that the script was great or anything, but, you know, I didn't agree with the changes he wanted to make, and he talked Angie into cutting me out. Uh, so they went and they made it, and I was not involved in it. I knew Cynthia from, uh, we were both in Pennsylvania. I knew Cynthia, I knew how great she was, so it was wonderful to have her on the movie. But I was not involved in the production. I went to see the movie when it was released, and I was, I was amazed at the changes that they made, and I still didn't agree with it. In fact, at one point, I wanted them to take my name off the picture. Yeah, because it was supposed to be sort of a, a sweet story about this naive kid that went to Thailand, and you know, Roy made made him a badass, you know, basically, which which made for no dramatic, no arc of the character. So after this came out, and it didn't have the same success, it had some success, but it didn't have the same success as No Retreat, No Surrender. I went to NG and I said, look, you know, if you want to keep making these movies, and you want me involved, then Roy can't be involved. It's either Roy or me, because you know I, I have a you know a way I'd like to see these movies made, and he doesn't share that same vision. And so NG and I worked together, and Roy went went his own way. So I, I think I've made uh, ten pictures with seasonal. So is that kind of how the third one came about? Well, yes, the third one was supposed to be called Blood Brothers, but uh, you know the distributors all wanted to call it No Retreat, No Surrender Three, and <laughs> uh, No Retreat, No Surrender Three had. Uh, Lauren in it because Lauren is really a great fighter and he's a he's a good actor and he's a really fantastic fighter and so we used Lauren again and then we used uh, Keith Vitale who was a I think he was a six-time world champion fighter really good martial artist quite quite a good actor and 
Keith and I are our best friends still today. I mean, we really get along, and we've done a bunch of movies together, Keith and I. Was Blood Brothers, was that another one of these, like, it wasn't originally supposed to be, and then you kind of had to retool? Did you do much work on the script to make it a No Retreat, No Surrender film? No, we just called it No Retreat, No Surrender so that, so that uh, <laughs> distributors would be interested in it. <laughs> So how did you get out from under the no retreat, no surrender? It sounds like your 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 initial success was kind of your curse after a little bit. Well, I think that uh, it really didn't make any sense, honestly, to call these movies no retreat, no surrender two and three because they weren't sequels. They didn't have the same characters in them. And I think it was confusing people. And so when we did the next one, which was uh, King of the Kickboxers, that's when we said, you know, this has got nothing to do with it. It's just, you know, it's Lauren and it's Billy Blanks and we're going to Thailand and it's uh, you know, it's sort of a police story. So let's, let's just break, break clean and, and do King of the Kickboxers. And, uh, I've had some people contact me recently about doing a remake of No Retreat No Surrender because they liked the movie so much. You know, I think if there would, if there was money available, I think it would be fun to remake No Retreat No Surrender. I think we could do a really good job with it. Were you aware that there's a fan edit of No Retreat No Surrender out there? No, I've seen some. I've, I saw a Brokeback Mountain edit of uh, No Retreat No Surrender. So somebody did one with the with the breakdancer and Kurt and sort of a Brokeback Mountain falling in love kind of montage from No Retreat No Surrender. What's the fan <laughs> edit like? It's, uh, it's actually very lovingly done. Um, somebody took the time to go through all the different versions of the film because apparently the, there's a UK cut and Australian version of it and took all of what they considered the best parts of it and kind of redid the entire film, looked at the score. There's like different lines in some of the versions. So it was, it's, it's really well done. Yeah. And they, uh, apparently like there's different versions of the, um, the songs and everything. One's faster and slower. So we were approached to do a soundtrack for no retreat. Surrender. Somebody wanted to, to do a soundtrack and we declined because we didn't think there'd be enough demand for you know a cd soundtrack from nurture that's in it at the time it was probably on cassette right <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right exactly so I'm I'm curious. You you continued to make martial arts films for for quite a while, all the way through from '86 up to uh, at least in, what '98 with American Dragons, and then you kind of switched a little bit with WatchUsDie.com. How did that one come about? Well, we the martial arts genre, low budget, uh, was kind of dying. You know, the the money wasn't there. You know, we could spend the money on the front end, but we couldn't get the money back because so many people were making movies. And as I alluded to before, you know, we, we take the time to get things right. You know, not that the movies are perfect or anything, but at least the action, you know, we won't make a movie for less than, in less than 36 days because it just takes that kind of time to get all the fights right, to get everything right. And I, you know, I've seen some of these 12 and 15 day movies and talked to some of the guys that made it. And they were telling me, you know, we are given three takes. And if we don't get it in three takes, we move on. And you know, we've, we've spent, you know, we've done 50 takes of a certain move just to make sure that it's right. And you know, I can't imagine being, being cut to that kind of thing, but it, that's, that was the reality of the time. You know, from one film market, what we would do is we'd make a movie and we'd take it to like the Cannes film market, we'd take it to the Milan film market. And from one film market to the next, the amount of money we could get reduced by 90%. I mean, it was just, it was like a slap in the face. We get, we went there and the money we were offered for the film was so much lower than we had been before. So we had to do something different and we couldn't do action really. So 
I came up with the idea for Once to Die because at the time there was the internet was just new and there were these these sites that had 24-hour cameras going in in these houses. I thought it would be interesting if there was a murder that happened and you know we could we could have sort of a thriller with a little bit of a sexy thing going on. And so that's why we tried Watch the Stod because we could make that. We did it in one location. I think we did it in 20 days. It was it was uh, it was a low budget movie that it didn't really succeed, but it was a it was an interesting try. So what are you up to these days? Well, actually, I was just in Hong Kong. Uh, I was in Shanghai on some business and I on some other business because I'm a journalist as well. And so I was in Shanghai on assignment. And I called up NG because I knew he had an office in Shanghai. Uh, NG has a, a bunch of theaters in China. I think he's got 14 or 20 theaters all throughout China, movie theaters, really high-end, very nice movie theaters. So I called him and just wanted to have lunch with him because we've still, we've stayed friends and we've stayed in touch. So I went over and sat down with him and, you know, we were having lunch and, and he looked at me and he said, you know, we should do another movie. And I was like, sure. <laughs> Who turns down doing a movie? So uh, I'm working on something for him now. You know, I, I finished the first draft of the script. I'm working on the rewrite right now. And, you know, hopefully within a year, you'll see something in the theaters, uh, a new martial arts film. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Did I read right that you teach film over in Geneva? That's right. I'm, I teach at Webster University. I teach in the media the screenwriting. I teach filmmaking and I teach journalism. So I only do that once a week, though. So it's, it's sort of a sideline thing that I do just to keep keep up with the young people and see what what the newest things are and it's funny for this last script that I'm working on I was there two days ago at Webster and I had some of my students and some of the professors and we did a table read and I got their feedback on the dialogue you know would a would a 15 year old say this kind of thing so it's it's really been a help for me it's got to be tough to keep up with the slang with uh, with how quickly <laughs> it morphs these days I have five kids I have two two older kids and then I have a 15-year-old stepdaughter and a 12-year-old stepdaughter and a 5-year-old. So I get enough slang at the dinner table, although often it's in French. But, uh, you know, I, I'm watching the current movies with these with these, with the kids, and so I'm, I'm trying to keep up with it. But you're right, it is a bit of a challenge. Here's a dumb question for you. When it comes to being in Switzerland, is there a predominant language, or what do you have to know to be able to survive over there? Well, I live in the French-speaking part. In Switzerland, there are three main languages. There's German, Italian, and French. And I live in the French part. So I speak French here, and I speak a little bit of German, so if I go to the German part, I can get along. And I speak enough Italian to get in trouble. <laughs> but, uh, but, but the good thing is I speak Chinese, so uh, here in Europe, if I get lost anywhere, I always just go into a Chinese restaurant and ask for directions, because I'll understand it completely. And when did you pick up French after all this? Well, when I moved over here, I met my wife currently here, and uh, she was living here, and so I, I decided to move over. And as I was covering the watch industry, uh, as a journalist, you know, the watch industry is here in Switzerland. So I started studying French when I moved over here six or seven years ago. It's hard. It's much harder than Chinese. Wow. That's saying something. I thought that Mandarin was one of the toughest languages to learn. Well, I, I love Mandarin so much that it doesn't seem like a chore to learn new things. And, you know, the Chinese grammar, there is no grammar in Chinese. It's just, there's no tense, there's no male or female. And in French, it's very complicated with male and female, and there's you know, all the tenses, past and future, and this and that. So here in, in Switzerland, I only speak in the present tense. I don't speak in the past. Everything's in the present tense. I don't conjugate. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's good. You live for the now, right? Yeah, that, that's oh, that's that's my excuse. If they say, "Why didn't you use the past tense?" I say, "I live in the now." Well, hey, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. 
You bet. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And if you need anything more, just let me know. We're back. Thanks again to Keith Tramberg for taking the time to talk to us. You can find out more about his work over at our website, projection-booth.com, and you can see some of the -the behind-the-scenes photos that uh, Keith sent us over at our Facebook group, so please be sure to check that out. We're talking this week about No Retreat, No Surrender, and as we talked about before, this was one of the first films featuring Jean-Claude Van Damme, but he would get a lot more notice the year later with the film Bloodsport, a film that kind of really put him on the map. Now, Zach, we've had you on before to talk about Flooding with Love for the Kid on our first Blood episode, uh, which was just an amazing one-man war of a film, a complete faithful adaptation of the David Morrell novel about Rambo in set near New York City apartment. But beyond First Blood, Jean-Claude Van Damme means a lot to you and plays a major role in your recent production, Your Brother Remember. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Just as with Rambo uh, and my my making of, of, of First Blood by myself here in my apartment, it's not as though I was always I was I've spent you know since reading that novel as a ten year old and then spent the, the next twenty three years completely obsessed with Rambo and like trying to engage other people in discussions of First Blood and Rambo or this kind of thing. It's but it always very much stuck in my head. It was always a very much indelible part of my my childhood and and a novel that uh, that still remains my my favorite novel. So similarly, Jean Claude didn't have. A whole lot of meaning to me until I took on this project and realized all of these things that I've been talking about, specifically about his personality and his journey to being a big movie star and what that meant and and what it meant to him and what it what what audiences are expecting and his whole journey back in 1989 in uh, 1990. I was a teenager. My brother was a teenager, and I think we had HBO. That's how I see all of them. Like you get HBO free for a weekend or something, and we saw a Kickboxer, and and we we were you know we were bright bright kids, but you know you, when you're a bright kid, you're a bright adolescent. It means it means that you can kind of see through the first level of horseshit of society. And then you think you're something really special because you've, you've seen through the first level of horseshit of society and you realize that this is, you know, so we saw Kickboxer on HBO and realized that uh, it wasn't Citizen Kane. And so, and we had a lot of fun with his accent. We just loved his accent. And uh, so we did just uh, this, this, you know, I don't know, 15, 12, 15 minute version of the scenes we remembered and the lines we remembered from kickboxer with a borrowed video camera from my high school and that was one of the rare instances where my brother and i sort of came to came together other than that we were very different individuals uh he's the real actor and i was kind of the director i wasn't even really an actor then i i i learned i learned a lot of my acting skills really from from him i think much more so than dartmouth college so 20 years later then I decided after making Flooding with Love for the Kid, you know, I thought, well, now to me in my mind I was a big Hollywood star. I made a big Hollywood movie. 
and I started it and directed it. So I was like Warren Beatty now, not to anyone else, but to myself, I was, and that was good enough. And so I decided to follow in the steps of, of Hollywood and Hollywood every 20 years remakes its own films and it plugs in the latest hairstyles and music and looks and body fat ratios and all those things. But I decided, well, what if I try and keep all, try and reduce all the variables and make it a before and after and just go back and try and recreate these scenes I did uh, as a kid with my brother 20 years later and just look at the before and after. Hey, my kid brother. He says he's going to be champ. I say he's going to be a lawyer. I'm going to kick his butt. Got my kid brother in my corner for now. He says he's going to be a vet. I say he's going to be a lawyer. Well, I'm going to kick his butt. <laughs> yeah, this is my kid brother. So he's going to be the champ. <laughs> I say he's going to be a lawyer. I'm going to kick his butt. The time it had nothing to do with my loving Jean-Claude Van Damme or loving my brother. It was an experiment. As I worked on it, as I created it, that's what it became. And I think that's where its, its real value lies because I, I, learned, I learned through that project that despite all of their faults, which are many. I love my brother and I love Jean-Claude Van Damme because he has proved himself to me, Jean-Claude Van Damme, very much as an, as an everyman. So I look back, while granted back when I was 14 or 15 making those scenes, yeah, it was parody. But in recreating them and in representing uh, uh, and in recreating them and then, and then creating also the live theater piece – in which I in, in which I play Jean Claude Van Damme for the most part, I learned a, a, a tremendous uh, respect and admiration for the journey that Jean Claude has taken. Not to say that he's a saint, like in any way, but for exactly the opposite reasons. For the reasons that he he is just he is an everyman figure to me, and he'll and he admitted that. And he will admit that. He admitted it in, in JCVD. And he goes back to – he's a very mercurial fi- figure. He goes back to being a star when his star has risen and goes back to being a self-pitying guy when his star is down. But that, it's it's completely human. It's completely human and he does it in such a way that is – Completely, I, I don't mean this as a, a condescending way, uh, childlike. His narcissism and his self-pity are like a five-year-old. And that touches me very deeply. I wanted to tell you in terms of being touched, this film that you did, and I love Flooding with Love for the Kid. If if no one has had – if you haven't had a chance to see it, you know, seek it out through Zach or I, I know that you were uh, – when we had you on the First Blood episode, go back and listen to the First Blood episode. And I had a chance to see that in the theater and then when we had you on the show and you told me about this project and gave me a chance to see it, it was amazing to me. That you know your brother remember is so it's so emotional and you don't expect it and that and that is why it it just totally blew me away when I saw it and I told Mike I'm like you have to see this I mean he's done it again because I think both projects are just incredible and especially using all the different sort of experimental techniques that you have in this film with, as you were saying, recreating these things that your brother did when it came to kickboxer. And also uh, we forgot to mention faces of death yeah. and, and then the live theater, 
where I think you're just in a black box and you're Jean-Claude Van Damme and you're telling these stories of your life and, mm-hmm. and all of this stuff. And then weaving it together with this story of brothers, which Kickboxer is, but also the story of brothers, which you and your brother are. Mm-hmm. It was just – it was impactful to me and an impactful to me in a way of being an only child and I don't have a brother. So mm-hmm. – it's just moving and, and really well done, and um, I, I just want to tell you that. Well, thank you very much. I, I I appreciate it, and it was it was not. I think a lot of the it came out. I had no, I didn't know where I was going with the project when I was making it. I thought I could never make anything better than flooding with love for the kid and it just you know that's the artist's fear always as it is with my current project uh and so i'm i'm very i'm very surprised when i premiered that show you know later i made it into a film i just i i i you know think business-wise so i i also make my life since my live theater shows incorporate a lot of film i say well why not turn it around and i'll film the live parts and put those into the film and make it a film so you can watch why your brother remembered just as a standalone film but it i didn't think i wouldn't have been surprised at all if when it premiered in europe four years ago if people booed and i got kicked off the stage and the festival manager said look zach good good try but you're 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 a good actor but you but but uh you can't you don't have any i would not have been surprised i was okay yeah you're right you're right i don't know what the fuck i'm doing i'll just go home but to my surprise it really it it really touched uh, a lot of people because i think everyone there was a lot that i i didn't even realize how universal it was one of course many people have siblings or relatives that they have become estranged from and two, just about everyone of my generation did that stuff when they were kids. They got their hands on a video camera some way or another. And, of course, the first things they did was start making their own movies or reenacting their favorite TV shows or movies. So it it had this automatic universal appeal and you blend that in with my real gift, if I have any gift at all, is editing. I'll, I'm a great editor. All, all the rest is kind of smoke and mirrors. Uh, but I'm a really good editor, and that, of course, has a lot to do with uh, with with the strength of the pieces. And so I feel that the way that it was then put together, and 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 the structure that I created for it, and the way that I edited and put together, s- struck a nerve. And I'm still touring it today and showing it as a film at at places that have a soul. I'm curious, where did the music video sections, you've got two of those in there, where did those kind of come from? What I try and, try and do is, because I'm also, uh, I'm also, I wanted to be a singer-songwriter. I, I, when I was 12 years old, I wanted to be Paul Simon. When Paul Simon was 12 years old, he wanted to be Elvis Presley. Ironically enough, now in my next piece, I think I'm going to be playing Elvis Presley. So music is also very, that's my introduction to the, to the arts, music, Simon and Garfunkel. That's how I got into the arts in the first place, before I was going to go to MIT, where Dolph Lundgren went and got a degree in chemistry. Anyway, so music is a big part of, of my life, or or what i can do with it i'm not a natural at, at, at all I, uh but i but as i said i you know like a, my gift is editing everything else i i can fake really well and uh so then i had this idea i wanted to give i didn't want to be uh, i still wanted to remain somewhat subtle but i wanted to give hints throughout your brother remember of what had passed in the pat in in the the 20 years between the original 
home movies and the remakes of the home movies. And so rather than which some people would have preferred, as I've heard, like, you know, real like sentimental, anguished, intellectual talks about the details of my brother's drug abuse, my depression, his prison stints. I, we, I made them in songs, you know, to popular melodies that everyone would recognize. And so, because I never wanted to get the make the piece too down. I mean, my my new piece is even more depressing than your brother remember. But to me, it's still funny as hell. Like I would never make a piece just to be depressing. What would be the point in that? I'm already depressed enough. So it's always it's always got to have some funny you know lift to it. It's always got to have some sort of goofiness to it. And so we just took these incidences. And made them and took some popular songs or well-known songs and crafted these flashback, so-called flashback in, uh, sequences in which you get hints at what has transpired over the past 20 years. Those are very effective. And I love the way that you do kind of let the narrative flow out in the way that it comes out. And it's a little bit of a mystery. So we get to get these glimpses and everything. So I was really glad that you chose to do it in the way that you did. I thought it, that it was brilliant. So I just wanted to throw that out there. I'm deeply appreciative. I can never, for every, every positive comment I get is great, but, but it, it takes a hundred positive comments for me to negate one negative comment. And surprisingly enough, though, I think my films are very, my theater, very American. America has no use really for my work. I'm much more successful and supported in Europe. And I just think that both of them really flooding with love for the kid and your brother. Remember, I I'm appreciative of it because you are taking those risks. And I think that you're, you know, you're hitting it out of the park with both of them and just a big fan of both of them. And I think that really people should take it upon themselves to check it out if they haven't, because I don't think that you'll see work like this. It's, it's very unique. It's very well done and you're to be commended for it. Well, it's ex- extremely that that counts for two compliments. Yes, that counts. That's going to help negate a lot of the uh, negativity that I'm sure to receive. So thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. One of the things that always got to me about Jean-Claude Van Damme, and it, it's a little funny, but at the same time, I take it very seriously, is the way that on film he has been split. There are so many times where he has played twins or different versions of himself as we go through um like even something like the order where he's playing two roles and then you've got you know maximum risk which really i think um no it was double impact double, which double was the one that really 90, yeah, yeah two brothers yeah that was the one that was pretty much my first real exposure to van damme was um, when double impact uh came out to theaters and having the you know double van damme double van damage kind of uh image and everything it kind of plays into two things because not only are we explaining the accent for one character, but now we're explaining it for two, which is really awkward. A lot of times when these characters have allegedly grown up in different parts of the world, um, such as maximum risk. But I, I always find it very interesting that Van Damme has played these split parts and it's, it really came to the fore for me with JCVD, where he is 
being the other side of the coin to the roles that he's played all throughout his career and being this, uh, you know, being himself in a way, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, how close is that character JCVD to the real Jean-Claude Van Damme or not? But for you, what are some of your favorite uh, Jean-Claude performances? I, of course, and it's just, it's just these weird, I, I, you know, I don't believe in any, um, I guess you'd call me an existentialist, uh, but for some reason, I, one thing that really informs my work are when, when I realize coincidences, and when I realize there's a coincidence somehow between two different parts of my work or show, I immediately, I recognize that coincidence and blend them and show how they are related. And so just just by the glory of coincidence, the new show, which has a cameo by Jean-Claude Van Damme, premiered in Belgium on October 18th, his 53rd birthday. I swear to God – well, I, I said I'm an existentialist now. I'm swearing to God. I, <laughs> I swear to nothing that I had nothing to do with with that. It just it premiered on Jean Claude's birthday. Then, when I first took the show on the road and it uh, played uh, for the first time on tour in Oslo on no- I believe is November fourteenth. That's when the Volvo commercial was released. So we we are we are entwined, Jean Claude and I. Obviously, I go beyond my existential beliefs. And in terms of performances then that I think are very moving. I I think that that performance, what he does in those, in that one minute and 18 seconds in the Volvo commercial, there are very few things in this world that make me cry. I've seen a lot and I've heard a lot and I'm desensitized to a lot of stuff. When I saw that Jean-Claude commercial for the first time, I cried. I've had my ups and downs, my fair share of bumpy roads and heavy winds. That's what made me what I am today. Now I stand here before you. What you see is a body crafted to perfection. A pair of legs engineered to defy the laws of physics. And a mindset to master the most epic of splits. even though it's all it's voiceover and you're just seeing him but you can see the sincerity that he has that he believes in and you can believe and you can believe the sincerity of his of his words and when he does that you know his signature split it is a sign of in the setting sun it is going out to it is very is a very bittersweet poignant moment because it is it's something I relate to very much, and this connects me to Rambo as well, and the Rambo character. The knowledge, the knowledge that you're kind of you're going out, you're 
you're dying. And yet you stand in your final moment, you stand up as you're dying, as you were going out, and you stand up and you do, you you create uh, your, what you are, your most beautiful physicality, your most beautiful, you, it's like, yes, now I'm, I'm finished, but God damn it, I can still do this. So that uh, was as simple as it was. I guess I, I like simplicity. That was a great, a wonderful, wonderful performance. Other, other than that, of course, his performance in JCVD, particularly during the six-and-a-half-minute monologue that he improvised mostly, is a beautiful moment, again, because it is not because it is saintly. It's very, in some ways, self-pitying and arrogant and, and such. But, it's, but again, it's, it's very much an everyman speech. In terms of other movies or performances that he's done, well, I enjoy, I certainly enjoy the, as I said before, I enjoy very much his attempt at being a method actor. And I know he commits himself to, I know he tries, I know he works at it and wants to do a good job at it. Well, there's a period, of course, in the 90s when he was totally coked out and, and just, you know, didn't give a shit about, just phoned it in, yeah. But in the early days and now in the later days, there is a commitment and there is a passion to his performances, no matter how formulaic the movies, no matter how, you know, idiotic some people might think the whole, the whole uh, film is. There's just like his performance in... Uh, Universal Soldier uh, 3, where they finally, when they brought back Dolph Lundgren, and he was still Luke Devereaux, but it was like 20 years later, and he was just all messed up, and he was trying to play this character that was just all messed up. But he himself was all messed up, and so it just, it it worked beautifully. And I had this tremendous uh, sympathy for him, in like in one scene he just in 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 universal soldier 3 he he just uh goes nuts in a bar like for like for very little reason for some slight insult and i could just really appreciate that and i could see that coming from him personally of just like another person calling him dumb or something i think he gets more and more honest as he as he ages i still haven't quite found the right the right key to to switch in terms of getting him to uh really appreciate my appreciation of him <laughs> but but i don't take it personally and there's plenty of time so well speaking of which you know we talked about your brother remember and your your love of his work and and that and i wanted to give people a taste of it with an interview that you put together channeling jean-claude mm. van damme hello i am jean-claude van damme we're here in the brussels we're making the interview for the projection booth for the podcast in America, where they do the talking about the movies, they talk about my movies, uh, they talk about No Retreat, No Surrender, where one of the first movies I make. And uh, the host is uh, Mac White and uh, Robert St. Marie. And so they call me up, they say, Jean Claude Van Damme, will you please you talk about the movie? And I say, Sure, great, I love my fans. I love to talk about the movies and I love to talk to my fans. So I'm here in Brussels now back. I'm in between filming two different movies uh, that I'm recording uh, now in the, uh, Romania and uh, uh, Estonia. And uh, they're coming out soon. They have uh, Scott Atkins in them too. And they come out soon. 
And uh, but in between, I decided, yeah, sure, I'd love to talk to my fans. I'd love to talk to the people in America that do so much for me and make my career so good. So uh, I hear with uh, in Brussels, uh, in Belgium, uh, with uh, my friend uh, uh, Zachary, Zachary Oberzan, Oberzan, who do the the tribute to me. The your brother, remember which is a movie about about me that we made in my honor uh, about me and my career and how, how I develop as an actor and as a person. And uh, he does a very good job uh, with it. He toured through the world with it, and he makes the, the movie too. And so there's the movie and there's the uh, theater piece. It is in uh, my honor about me. And uh, so I had the great uh, pleasure to speak with uh, Zachary Obert Oberzan about the movie uh, Your Brother Remember, which comes from the film Kickboxer I make in 1989. Now, you, you talked about going to Belgium and doing the work and, and stuff like that over there. And you, you said that I guess he does know that uh, you're interested in, in what he does and you've, you've done this work related to him in a way within your own work and was wondering what the reaction has been from him if you've heard or had any reaction it's been varied when in 2010 i think when your brother was just making a splash in europe i was already having had setting sights on it on, on a new project and i wanted him to be involved in the new i wanted him to play a brief cameo if i could you know get him and surprisingly enough, he was easy enough to look up just in the phone book. I was I was working in Antwerp at the time, and I knew that he had uh, he, uh, he has a home, a beach home in. Uh, I'm pronouncing it wrong. My my French and Flemish are terrible, but Kanoka Beach, a beach wealthy resort beach on like the little beach that Belgium has. And I knew that his uh, his wife, his his like seventh wife, but actually his sec- was a second wife, and he has two children with, and then he spent a long time away from, but then came back too, and now they're married again and have uh, again another sign of maturity. He sort of come back to his not original wife, but his second wife. That's Gladys Portuguese. She became somewhat famous as a body, female bodybuilder in the eighties. So, you know, it's not as, as as you guys probably know, it's not as hard as you would think to look up celebrities. And so, you know, I looked up Gladys Portuguese in the Kanoka phone book, and there she was. And so I started calling his house. Meanwhile, too, I'd also uh, call, and sometimes like his, his son would his son would answer, uh, Christopher, and uh, he gave me his text, his, his cell phone number uh but then once i actually did get uh get a hold of jean-claude at home and he was a bit suspicious at first but i did speak with him at length and this actually is part of of the new film which i'm going to send you guys this conversation i had and he he doesn't really uh again because of this and not in a condescending way but because of this sort of naive quality he has i don't think you and he's very suspicious of course of people making fun or taking advantage of him because that's what's happened a lot over the last few years so granted he can be you know, suspicious of me but though he's very he's very polite he's very polite it's always thank you yes sir very polite man 
And that unfortunately led – well, it led to a talking with his manager and trying to set something up, I think, somewhere along. But he is an extremely fickle person. He has a, he announces a new project every month, but then he goes on to something else. He does, you know, and he will – and I've got his email and, all that, and I can email him and sometimes I'll hear from him within a day and saying like, oh, no, I can't do – I'm totally booked all of May. Or sometimes I won't hear from him at all. So it's very strange. I had another conversation with him when he was doing uh, a, a reality series for in England called Behind Closed Doors with Jean-Claude Van Damme. It's being produced in England. And uh, this was in early 2011. And your brother, as the show was really going strong in Europe. And uh, again, I tried to pitch to him and tried to get him to come do something with me or me, or me go to him and do something. And and the producer of this reality series, I think, heard got word of this through his quasi-manager. And so called me up and put me on the phone with Jean-Claude. And we spoke. And they said, okay, so there's a, you've got the show and there's a trailer for the people. Can we see the trailer? And I said, yeah, go to this address on YouTube. You can watch it. So they did. And they watched it. And Jean-Claude watched it. Now, the problem is when I made that trailer for your brother, remember, I wasn't even half done with the project. I made that because I needed to send a festival something to see to know that I was working. And it intentionally did not have any of the Jean-Claude recent scenes in it. It was just all basically the parody we did as kids. So Jean-Claude watched it while I'm on the phone with him. And uh, he watched it and finished. And he said, uh, do me a favor. Do not make fun of me. And I was so touched by by that, by the so the fact that he, he like it wasn't he, like he thought like I was making fun of him, but he wasn't even like pissed off and said like you know you stupid asshole, do not make fun of me. It was like a it was like a plea. It was just like a mercy. It was asking for mercy in a way. And and I said I said no no Jean Claude. I, I felt like I, we could be on a first name basis, and I said no no Jean Claude. You've got you've got to believe me. This is no way a, a par. It might look on the surface like it's a parody about you, but uh, but ultimately the whole piece is a it is a tribute to you. And he said, uh, okay, well, good, good, good luck to you and that other guy, and uh, we'll talk sometime in the future. Yeah. So it, 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 I mean, it put him, it obviously, the trailer then put him off. He did not want to, and, and honestly, I don't know if, if he were to see the later scenes in, in which I interpret his monologue, in which I interpret the final fight of Kickboxer, I don't know how he would react being the guy he is, if he would understand my meaning behind it. Or just simply take it as as some kind of parody. That's always been my stumbling block with with Jean Claude. But I, I I hope that someday. Uh, so those have been my experiences with him, other than occasionally texting him from from South Korea and saying, "Hey Jean Claude, I'm doing my show about you in South Korea. Everyone really loves it." And he writes back, "You know, fantastic." So. <laughs> One day we'll probably cross paths. That's awesome. All right, we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
nothing in your education or experience can have prepared you for this film. Alejandro Jodorowsky's The Holy Mountain. The Holy Mountain is a film completely outside the entire tradition of motion picture art. It is outside the tradition of modern theater. is a film outside the tradition of criticism and review. right we're back next week with a show about alejandro jodorowsky's holy mountain so grab your tarot decks and your booze and get ready to turn shit into gold as we talk about one of jodorowsky's amazing works with steven scarlatta a co-producer of the new documentary jodorowsky's dune now before we go we want to thank this week's special guest keith w strandberg and also our special guest host zachary oberzan now zach last time you were on the show we talked about flooding with love for the kid and it was great to hear all about this new project so what i want to do is hopefully you could tell people where they can stay up to date with you and get copies of your projects well thank you i, I appreciate it uh as i've uh we've we've all blathered on now about your brother remember for a while so i hope people get the sense the sense of that and i'm i figured out i used to sell copies actual physical copies of flooding with love through paypal off my website which is just zacharyoberzan.com that got kind of and i did it was okay decent sales one a week or so you know nice yeah but i figured i should you know get with the times and start streaming it but i don't really didn't know how to do do that it's like most of the things i don't really know how to do and so i just kind of screw around and figure out ways to do it so i figured out this way of putting it you know putting the films on vimeo and then going through paypal and uh so basically now it's much easier and much cheaper to watch either flooding with love for the kid or your brother remember if you just go to my my website zacharyoberzan.com you can click on either uh, either to watch either film and it's five dollars and i think paypal keeps i don't know 50 cents or something so so it's not this isn't you know um, i'm not uh <laughs> it pays for my 
this pays for my coffee in New York. But anyone that wants to see flooding or or your brother can can go to my website and click on there and get uh, you pay five dollars on PayPal and you can get a link and password to watching the films on Vimeo. I would certainly hope that uh, people would would want to to check it out. I would definitely direct them to do so because if they haven't seen either, they're definitely in for a treat. And I'm willing to bet that by now you've probably recouped your, what, uh, $98 production budget on uh, Flooding with Love for the Kid? Uh, $95.96, I think. Uh, yeah, close. About not, about $96. Yeah, I, I have the with, the, with the exception of Billy Jack, which I'm also thinking about doing a project on. I'm very obsessed with Billy Jack. I think I have percentage-wise, the largest grossing film in history because, yes, it cost $96 to make. And I've made about between selling DVDs at shows or online or from film screenings, I would guess I've made, I don't know, nine or $10,000. So that's quite a percentage. And this is why everyone who's ever gone to film school hates me. <laughs> <laughs> you game the system, sir. I did my best. Well, thanks again, Zach, for coming on the show. And we'll have links posted over at our website, projection-boot.com, where you can keep up with all that Zach is up to, as well as where you can leave feedback about this episode and listen to everything in our archives. Go back and listen to that uh, Flooding with Love for the Kid that was in our uh, First Blood episode, and we'll have a link to that as well. So please go over to iTunes for us and give us a rating and give us a review. That would really help spread the good word about the projection booth and remember podcasts are not to be used aggressively but if we have no other choice just a little more time is all Cause just a little more time could open closing doors Just a little uncertainty can bring it down
to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice, 